This particular chapter here in 2 Samuel 13 illustrates a proverb. Proverbs 14, verse 12. It says there, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, here in 2 Samuel 13, we're beginning a new section. And it's David's life after his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And it's a really difficult subject. It's God's judgment. And his judgment was that David would experience what he did to others himself fourfold. And the point to that is that when you just plant a seed into the ground, you actually get more back. That's what God wove into the fabric of the universe. So you plant a seed, said Jesus, and it yields 30, 60, 100-fold. That's up to God. Here, David sowed a sin. And its effect was multiplied in his life and in his family's life. And it's a painful thing to watch. So you ask the question, why do this? And the reason is, as the Apostle Paul pointed out, these things were written for our instruction that we should not do the things that they did. And so we want to think about this as we read the account of what happens here is that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. And death is not God's way. So here we are reading in 2 Samuel chapter 13. It says, After this, Absalom the son of David had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, we're introduced here to several people, and we're going to catch up now quickly on the plot. Amnon, there in verse 2, he is the firstborn son of David from his wife Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. He married her after he had to flee from Saul, left his wife Michal, the daughter of Saul, behind. David has married a number of wives. This is not recommended in the Bible. Does everybody understand me on this? All right. But here's, we got to, 
We got to keep this straight. Ahinoam was his second wife. Amnon is the firstborn. Wife number two of David was Abigail from Carmel. She doesn't come into this, but we want to keep things straight. Wife number three is Meacha. She's the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the firstborn son of Meacha was Absalom. Tamar is his sister, full sister. They have both the same father, the same mother. And as we'll notice, Absalom is very handsome. And his sister is beautiful. Now, Amnon says he loves his sister, half-sister, Tamar. He loves her. Is that true? Well, he thinks about her constantly. He thinks about her constantly. But he's frustrated because he can't have her. It is improper. That's what it says there in verse 2. It is improper for him to have her because she's his half-sister. Marriage and intimate relationships with half-sisters is forbidden by the law of God. Leviticus chapter 19. But let's think a little further about this. If you love someone, you want the very best for them, don't you? You want to make their life better. You think about, how can I make your life better? What can I do to serve you? Your happiness comes from blessing that other person, from that other person receiving care and protection. You want the very best for them. But Amnon doesn't think about Tamar to make her life better. He wants to make his life better. He wants to have sex with her. Now, as far as Amnon is concerned, these stupid commandments are in my way. If it wasn't for them, I could do something and I could have Tamar. Now, he's thinking about this so much that it affects him physically. And again, love does not affect you and mess your life up. Love is good. Whatever this is, it's not love. Does everybody get that? There's a real difference. Lust does affect you physically because it's unhealthy for your mind and the mental stress affects your body. This is lust, not love. Now, this relationship is forbidden by the law of God, but Amnon wants it anyway. Now, where did he develop this great lust for something he knows he can't have? And the answer is, big lust 
comes from feeding small lust. Nobody wakes up in the morning and decides, you know what, I want to sleep with my half-sister. Is that not outrageous? But see, you don't start out there. You start out with small lust that you can indulge. And the thing about lust is you cannot satisfy it. Now, this is lust on any level. When we hear the word lust, we think, sex. But all lust is, is a strong desire. A strong desire. So, there are really two ways of satisfying strong desire. And one way is, that you try to satisfy that desire directly. And you say, okay, I'm going to do something about this. But the problem is, when you directly try to fulfill your desires, it doesn't fulfill them. Because the other way to fulfill your desires is to let the Lord do it. And everything you need, you direct to him. And see, it says in scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that whole Psalm 23 speaks of how God meets our needs legitimately and fully to the point where David, the sheep, is sitting in a green pasture, lying down. And the thing about sheep is they can't lie down until their tummy is full and they're satisfied. So when you see a sheep lying down in a green pasture, that means that sheep is satisfied. And all that grass that says, come on and eat me. I'm, I'm green grass. I taste fabulous. But the sheep goes, nah, I'm full. We're cool. See, now the Lord wants to meet our needs. And he is the satisfaction for all of our needs. That's how you get satisfied. You see, God got a need. What do we do about this? And the Lord will satisfy that need. And he will do it over and over and over again. And there's nothing wrong in the way God satisfies that desire. And it's amazing when he does that and you go, wow, we're done. Woohoo. It's an amazing thing to not have something you need it and you don't have it and you have to live without it and you go, this is no fun. But then God satisfies that need and you go, wow, I didn't think God did stuff like that. But he does. Wow. Maybe I can have God work on these other things and then my life is going to go, wow. Wow. 
Okay, that's, that's the right way to do it. But here, Amnon isn't thinking, God, I have a need for companionship and to have good relationships and even satisfy my intimate requirements. Would you please satisfy me? He's not thinking about that at all. He's saying, I want sex. So you don't start big. Like I say, you start small. And I think Amnon probably, being the king's son, he can have anything he wants. So he finds out, I can sleep with women. I can indulge myself. But you know, trying to satisfy your desires on your own without God does not satisfy. And you find that it's kind of like trying to quench your thirst by drinking the wrong thing. And if you drink the wrong thing, it's not going to quench your thirst. It's going to make you thirstier. And you keep drinking the wrong thing. Say you started drinking salt water out on the ocean in a life raft and you're thirsty. And you think, well, I'm surrounded by water. And you get so stupid and desperate, you take a drink. But at least it was wet. But then you get thirsty, so you take another drink. And more. And what do you do? You die of thirst with your belly full of the wrong thing. So, you indulge your lust in something that's not right and it makes you thirstier and thirstier till going after your half-sister is just the next step. And it's a matter of, these stupid commandments are in my way. Well, here's what happens next in verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab is a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my, brother's, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, lie down in your bed, pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Okay, here's the next guy we're introduced to, Jonadab, son of Shimea. Shimea is one of David's older brothers. He's got seven older brothers, or six. So Jonadab and Amnon are cousins. 
And he's also Tamar's cousin for all that. But Jonadab is not really Amnon's friend. Because a real friend would look out for your best interests and encourage you to be the best person you can possibly be. And a friend is faithful to tell you things that maybe you don't want to hear. Like, you know what, Amnon? I think you ought to stay away from her. I think you ought to shape up your life. Why don't you go to synagogue with me every once in a while? Quit messing around with your life. Why don't you make something out of yourself? Why don't you be somebody instead of just messing around? And, you know, that's what a friend will tell you. Faithful are the blows of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And Jonadab is a smart guy. He says, oh, is that what's bugging you? Heck, I can get you that. I can get her alone in your room with you. Just do this. Now, what kind of a guy is that? The term for this is hanger-on. And a hanger-on is somebody who hangs around with the famous people, the big people. And they're the ones that get them what they want. Because you're getting good with the big guy, and the big guy will say, this guy's a friend of mine, and he lets you have the good stuff. So that's what John adapts into. He's only looking out for himself. And because Jonadab is just looking out for himself, he helps his cousin Tamar get raped. That is not a friend. You want a guy for a friend who's going to tell you things you need to hear and who's honest with you and who loves God. That's the kind of friend you want. So, Amnon lays down here in verse 6 and pretends to be ill, and David comes to see him. How's it going, son? Oh, I don't feel very good. Wow, what can I do for you? Well, you could get Tamar to make some food for me or something. Maybe I'd get better. Okay, so verse 7. And Tamar sent home, uh, David sent home to Tamar saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother. 
Do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. So the plan works. It worked. Now Tamar tries to get Amnon to think about the consequences. Think about what's going to happen if you do this. It's shameful. It's against the law. It should not be done in Israel. It would be devastating to me. Do you realize this? Where could I go? But it would be just as bad for you. This is self-destruction. You know, there's, even in the language, to break the law. The opposite to one who breaks the law is one who keeps the law. That is whole and complete. The one who keeps the law is himself whole. The one who breaks the law actually does damage to himself. It's not just, oh, I stuck chewing gum under the seat. Bad me. The one who sins against the law of God does damage to himself. And she's trying to tell him this. She says, speak to the king. We can do this right. We can do this right. And again, who knows? Maybe she's just saying anything she can. But you know, Amnon is done thinking. He's been obsessing about her, and he is super done about that. He's unreasonable like an animal. And the aftermath is dissatisfaction and ruin. Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, Put this woman out, away from me. Bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated 
Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So look at this. Amnon hates his sister afterwards. Not what you would think, right? But it's not surprising because Amnon expected everything to be fabulous when he got what he wanted. This is going to be it. This is going to satisfy me. But it didn't satisfy him because sin cannot satisfy. Instead, it pollutes and it takes life. Sin can't give life. Only God gives life. That's why we want to seek the Lord. So he has just polluted himself. He's broken himself just a little bit more after all that other junk that has to be there that he's already done up until this one. And he blames all of his brokenness on her. Why, you worthless thing? You let me down. And she's kind of like evidence that he is a twisted person. This is not very pretty. So he just dumps her like she's garbage. And it's devastating. And she goes to Absalom, and Absalom tries to comfort her, and David hears about it, and he's angry. But, you know, he doesn't do anything about it. And really, the time for that is far past. Amnon is a grown man. You can't just take him and spank him. It's a little late for good parenting at this point. And should David execute Amnon for this? Because if he does, he himself should be executed for what he did. And it's a mess. And I don't know what to do about this. I'm not suggesting I know what to do. I'm just saying this is a mess. And what Absalom now thinks about is vengeance. And he plans his revenge carefully like Mission Impossible. Verse 23. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. And he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. 
Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So, two years, he's thinking about this in cold blood. And he carries the crime out in sheep shearing time. Sheep shearing is when you take your lambs and you cut off all the wool, and it's a time of rejoicing. You have a party, it's a happy family time and your guard is down, and the real impossible point is to get David to send Amnon to Absalom. So this is the way he goes about it. He manipulates David in the same way David manipulated to get his way. And this is the second time now, out of four, because Amnon manipulated David to get Tamar. Now Absalom is manipulating David so he can get Amnon. Does everybody get this? It's poetic justice. So Absalom invites David knowing it's too much. You know, you're going to have members of parliament there, son. you got the secret service. You know, my entourage is a little bit big. We're going to overwhelm you. It's really not practical. We can't do this. Oh, okay. Well, why don't you just send all the king's sons and make sure Amnon's with them? This is the, this is the, the mission impossible part. Really? Why do you want Amnon? Ah, well, you know. Dad, just, it's family. Oh, okay. Dun, 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 dun. We got it. We got it in the bag now. Amnon's coming. Why? Because David's saying so. Why? Because it's safe. Amnon's not thinking like, I gotta watch out, you know. 
So everything is going. Nobody, nobody guesses what's really going on. And Absalom is kind of like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, he's gorgeous. Absalom's gorgeous. This is Mission Impossible. So everything works just the way Amnon has planned. Right when Amnon is, did I say Absalom? Got to keep track of these guys. Absalom has planned that Amnon is sure going to get drunk. He can count on it. Get him drunk, and right at the right time, whack, he's dead. And it happens. And then somebody back at, the, at David says, all the king's sons are dead. This is not an accident. This is not Chinese whispers. This is make it look bigger than it really is. So that Jonadab, the son of Shimea, that prize hanger-on suckerfish, can look like a hero and say, oh no, not everybody is dead. Just Amnon is dead. Everybody else is alive. It's not as bad as you think. Oh, here we can see. I told you so. Really? So then David realizes it's just Amnon is dead. And time passes and, okay, it wasn't as bad as we thought. So Absalom kills Amnon and runs away to his grandfather, king of Geshur. So that's, you know, that's not the worst possible case scenario. He planned his escape. I'll just hang with grandpa for a while in the kingdom. And I'm going to get away with murder. And here's where we leave it. But just to remember this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And we're shown in this chapter what both of these men thought about. And it wasn't about God satisfying me, it's me. I am going to satisfy myself. I want sex, I want vengeance. And both of them got what they wanted. Now, they meditated on this. They thought about this. We know this. They thought about it every day. They planned it. They lusted after it. They meditated on it, and they got it, and it didn't do what they wanted it to do. Instead of leading to satisfaction, just like a train track, it was a train track going the other way to ruin and destruction, not just Amnon. Absalom, too, is going to die because he's on this track of, I am going to satisfy myself. Now, God would have us think on different things, and it's actually kind of shocking. When you begin to pursue, like we were talking about earlier, what are the things of the Spirit? 
The mind that's set on the flesh is death, says Paul. But the mind that's set on the spirit is life and peace. What is the spirit going to have you thinking about? What will you think on when you begin to read the Bible and say, I want to seek these things? You're going to be seeking things like love, like purity, self-control, forgiveness. You're going to be faced with eternal judgment. And you're going to be faced with the fact that your life must be pleasing to God or you will enter into eternal judgment and that's not going to come out right. Because what God requires of every person is perfect righteousness. Are you ready to stand before God and to have him examine your life for perfect righteousness? What will he find? And you know, if you're honest, you know what he will find. A bunch of stuff you do not want him to find. So the Bible will then say, Here's how you get ready to stand in the judgment. You need the righteousness of God to be given to you as a gift. That is what salvation is about. Not this abstract theological sort of mind game, but it's practical. You need to be clothed with the righteousness of God when you stand before him. Now see, when you submit to thinking about what God wants you to think about, you're going to live differently. And you're going to look for God to satisfy your needs. And you can lay them out and just say, God, you know, this part I don't like. And this part is going badly. And this stinks. And so do I. Now what are you going to do about it? Here's the building site. It's a mess. There's so much in my life that is not happening. I can see it. So here I am. What do you want to do about it? And he says, you know what? I can do a lot <laughs> because I'm God and I raise from the dead and I call into being things that don't exist yet. And when I say it, then it happens. And this is what God does. He transforms our lives by the renewing of our minds according to his will. Truth, that's what does it. So, will you take this seriously and pursue being transformed by the Word of God and by His Spirit? 
Will you take this seriously? Because this is God's calling for you. I already know this without even knowing you. This is what God is calling you to. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So as you give yourself to these things and say, you know what, it's a big book, but I want to learn it. I want to learn this. You're beginning a life that has to end in the way God says it will. Eternal life and blessing. But then there's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. This seems like a good way to go for me. But the end of it is death. And God is letting us know right now, you can choose. And he says, choose life that you may live. And if you choose any other way than what God says, automatically you are choosing death. So here is a simple decision that has life-changing consequences. Set your heart to learn God, to learn His Word. Let's pray. It is an amazing thing to come face to face with you. And even to think, I didn't know this stuff. And it's overwhelming to think about, am I right with you? Am I everything that you want me to be? And it's even worse to think, Probably not. And yet here we are. And we, we know. I'm not right. I need to be saved. And the only place to go is you. Because nothing else can save me and I cannot save myself. but I can ask you to save me because you sent your son to die for my sins. And when he died, he said, it is finished. And your word says that I can confess my sins to you. And you are faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me 
from all unrighteousness. And so today, we do confess our sins. And the more we go on, the more we realize how far short we come of your glory, your righteousness. There's no way. And yet we receive that forgiveness as a gift. So please, for everyone that is confessing sin, I pray also that you would wash and cleanse. And do a tremendous work. And please teach us your ways so that we may know you. All of your paths are mercy and truth. Teach us your ways. Make us to know you. And satisfy our needs. And I pray for every need that's here today. You know them. You're well aware. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us what we need. We trust you to do this. We look to you to satisfy. We commit ourselves into your hand and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.